The following audio was recorded at Stone Oak Bible Church. For more information about our church or for more resources, visit us at stoneoakbible.com. Would you grab them with me and open with me to Matthew 3 this morning? And uh, as you're getting there, we're continuing in our journey, obviously, in Matthew. And we bit off a massive chunk last week, and we're going to slow down a bit uh, today and settle in. Uh, last week, we looked at all of chapter 2. We looked at this story of the Magi coming from the east to see and worship Jesus. We looked at Herod, who feels real threatened by this baby. And... Uh, the lengths that he went uh, to try to eliminate that threat. And then ultimately, we saw last week the sovereignty of God that through it all, like God has a plan. His plan is Jesus, and he is sovereign in his plan, meaning no one, nothing can stop it. And we saw the way that God is sovereign in his power to accomplish that plan, and we saw the way that God is present with his people as his plan is accomplished. And uh, we saw all of that as, as God, through his power and presence, protects Jesus, protects Mary, protects Joseph from those seeking their harm, bringing them to Nazareth in safety. What an incredible shift. But here's the thing. In chapter 3, we're going to see a shift. And we're going to see a shift take place that's going to um, change our scene. So we go from the birth story of Jesus um, the story of the incarnation to a wild man. We go from Bethlehem, Nazareth, and we, we head to the wilderness. We go from Jesus, the Son of God, the Messiah, the one um, who was prophesied about to the one who was to prepare the way for him. Um, before we read this together, I want to highlight something. Uh, so back in Advent, Back in the Christmas uh, season, we, we, we talked about the fact that God has this plan that is unfolding from the beginning. And we talked about how through Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, through Moses, the kings, the prophets, through it all, we see all of it just unfolding and revealing God's amazing plan. And, and if you remember what happened, the final book of the Old Testament happens. We get to the final page, the final sentence, the final period, and after all of that, after all the prophets, it's silent. And we, we talked about for about 400 years, it's silent. And uh, no more prophets, no more word coming from God to his people, it's this. 400 plus years. Uh, we've said this before, but that little page that separates Malachi and Matthew, it's this page that represents 400 plus years of silence. And um, then we talked about the fact that the silence was broken, finally broken through a baby that was born through the Messiah coming. And here's the thing though, that is true, absolutely true, but there was more. Because really, uh, because of the sovereign plan of God, God was going to break the silence, not only through a baby to be born, not only with Jesus the Messiah, but finally through another prophet. 
after so long, another prophet. He was going to break the silence by giving his people another prophet, another mouthpiece. He was going to provide them. One way to think about this, and, and it's God breaks the silence through both his word and his word. And if you think about it, God breaks the silence through both the word and the word, meaning the uppercase, capital W, the word Jesus. He breaks the silence when the word becomes flesh, dwells among us. When I say the capital word, that's Jesus. He breaks the silence with his word, the incarnate word. But also he breaks the silence with the lowercase w word. And that is the word of God, the message of God through a prophet. God breaks the silence with his word and the word. And over the past couple months, we've been talking about the silence that was broken through the uppercase W word. We're going to shift this morning to talk about how God breaks the silence now through giving his people another prophet, his, his word through his prophet. And we're going to see in this text that there is a prophet who is called to prepare the way of the Lord to break the silence. And this gets us to Matthew 3. We're going to be looking at verses 1 through 6. I want to read them all together, and then we're going to pray, and, and we'll unpack them together. So here's where we're going to settle this morning. Verse 1 says this, In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea. Repent. For the kingdom of heaven is at hand. For this is he who was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah when he said, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. Now John wore a garment of camel's hair and a leather belt around his waist and his food was locusts and wild honey. Then Jerusalem and all Judea and all the region about the Jordan were going out to him and they were being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. All right, let's pray together and then let's get started digging into this. Lord, we, uh, we come to your word and we are so grateful for your story that you have given us of your son coming to earth putting on flesh and becoming a man. Yeah, there is no better thing that we could be doing than coming around your word this morning. So I pray that as we do, would you lead us, would you guide us? Would you direct my words? Would you direct our hearts? Would you open our ears? Would you open our minds to your truth? Like you have promised to do for your glory and for the good of your church in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Um, all right, just a, a couple questions that come out of our text that I want to hit right away. These might sound goofy, but maybe they don't. Um, first one is an obvious observation. Who is this John the Baptist that we get to in our text? I want to be clear, first of all, that Baptist is not a denominational affiliation. Okay? Um, what I mean by this is it's not like John the Lutheran or John the Methodist, uh, John the Presbyterian. It's not saying, in other words, that John was a Southern Baptist or a part of the Southern Baptist Convention. He wasn't saying that, okay? Um, we're not given John's denomination, and, and um, here's the thing. None of those really, none of those existed back then anyway. 
what we're given here by this title, John the Baptist. He was being given this title pointing to what John was doing, what he was doing. And so in in other words, he's called John the Baptist because he was baptizing. Um, Some of your translations might even not refer to him as John the Baptist. Some of your translations might might actually say John the Baptizer. And that's accurate. That's accurate, and it gets us away from the Southern Baptist Convention. Because John was the one, no offense to the Southern Baptist Convention, but John wasn't. Um, John was going out, he was baptizing, and therefore was called John the Baptist. We're going to come back to this idea of baptizing, very unique, uh, here in a bit. But, but before we do, let's come back to John. So here's the thing. This, this crazy man in the wilderness uh, who was baptizing, we're not given much information about him in Matthew. Uh, In fact, we know much more about John's story through Luke, the gospel of Luke. Um, According to Luke 1, we're not going to get deep into the weeds here, but John's parents um, both descended from from Aaron. Even more than that, we know that his father, Zechariah, served as a priest. And so John himself was qualified to serve as a priest after his father Um, In Luke, Luke centers around the absolute crazy miracle of John's birth. We're not given that in Matthew. We are in Luke. Um, John was, in in some ways, a miracle child. And uh, his parents, Elizabeth and Zechariah, they were elderly. They were were both elderly. And so having a baby was a surprise, right? Um, It was a miracle. And uh, another important fact that we're given in Luke is that Elizabeth, that's John's mom, and Mary, that's Jesus's mom, they were related. And uh, that means that John and Jesus were related to each other, most likely cousins, um, which is just really cool to think about um, because not only were they related, but, but Luke paints this picture of they're actually, Mary and Elizabeth, they're actually close to each other. So much so that in Luke 139, Mary travels to see Elizabeth during her pregnancy. And, and so commentators, historians, they're going to point this out. And I think it's safe to, to assume this, that um, Jesus and John growing up, they had contact with each other. Like it's not a crazy thought to think of little boy Jesus and little boy John playing together, having conversations together, talking together. Uh, John would have been six months older than Jesus and uh, were most likely friends. In fact, later in Matthew, uh, Matthew is going to record the death of John and the incredible grief and pain that Jesus goes through grieving his cousin and his friend. Um, I've said this already, but John was called by God to be a prophet, and, and the first prophet in a long, 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 long time, over 400 years. And uh, this prophet, John, shares a lot in common with a prophet who came before him. Uh, the, the, the similarities are insane. When you think about the Old Testament prophet of Elijah and our man here, John, the, the Baptist, um, we're going to get to his message here in a little bit, but let's just call out his, his image. <laughs> um, 
we're reminded of his image in verse four. We read this, but John, he wears like a crazy camel hair outfit and uh, a leather belt and eats crazy stuff and locusts. That's gross. I love honey. I'll give him that. Um, but the, we get this image of this burly man, wilderness man. Um, I think of a scraggly beard when I think of John. Uh, I doesn't say that, but you would imagine. Dressed strangely, eating strangely, which is very similar to Elijah. Came before, 2 Kings 1.8 paints the picture of Elijah rocking a real similar vibe. Covered in animal skin, wrapped in a leather belt, coats of hair, like all of these things. And so here, we're meant to, when we see John and Matthew, we're meant to, and the original... Um, first century Jew would have been drawn back to Elijah. And just in case you think I'm just making this up, I want to pull out two cases where we see this very clearly, um, both from Jesus. The first is when Jesus is talking to John's followers in Matthew 11. He says, for all the prophets, this is verse 13 through 15, for all the prophets and the law prophesied until John. And if you're willing to accept it, he, that is John, is Elijah who is to come. He who has ears, let him hear. Okay, what? Let's get one more that gets even more clear. A little bit later, Jesus now talking to his own disciples in Matthew 17 says this in verse 10. His disciples asked him, then why do the scribes say that first Elijah must come? Why do they say that, Jesus? What does he say? Jesus says, verse 11, Elijah does come and he will restore all things. But I tell you that Elijah has already come and they didn't recognize him, but did to him whatever they pleased so also the Son of Man will certainly suffer at their hands. And it's at this point that his disciples understand, verse 13. Then the disciples understand, understood that he was speaking to them of John the Baptist. There's a connection between John and Elijah. John the Baptist, this God-ordained prophet like Elijah, given a mission from God, given a message from God. We're going to talk more about that here in a bit. So this is John, uh, this eccentric prophet in the wilderness, preparing the way. And, and let's talk a little bit about that. Um, let's shift from the person of John, and let's talk about his mission. What was John's mission? What was he to do? Well, uh, verse 3 tells us this in, in, our, in our text. Matthew connects John the Baptist's mission to the prophecy of Isaiah that says, for he is the one spoken of by the prophet Isaiah. Verse 3 says this, when he said, the voice of one crying in the wilderness. Then listen to this. Prepare the way of the Lord. Make his paths straight. So Matthew's connecting John to the prophecy in Isaiah, and this prophecy is really significant and really good. Um, this is a quote from Isaiah 40. And uh, this, here in Isaiah, the, Isaiah is right at the beginning of this really long prophecy. When I say long, I'm talking 26 chapters, from chapter 40 of Isaiah to chapter 66 of Isaiah. This long prophecy is at the very beginning, and all of this prophecy is, is about the restoration and hope for Israel. I bring this up because in the Old Testament, 
uh, prophets, this message starting in Isaiah 40 is one of the most comforting texts in all of scripture. If you're in exile, if you're um, displaced, waiting for salvation, this prophecy assures them that they will be restored. So this section of Isaiah is powerful and it foretells the work of Jesus in, in, in full. We quote it a lot, this section of Isaiah, telling us the son of God would come, that he would die. We see that in Isaiah 52 and 53, even touching on the new heavens and new earth in Isaiah 66. Like we have this powerful prophecy of hope and comfort. Don't miss this. What does Matthew do? He connects John to the start of that prophecy. This is John crying out in the wilderness, preparing the way for the Lord. For the Jewish reader, anyone familiar with Isaiah, anyone who had been hanging on this truth, they would have immediately understood what Matthew is saying here. Um, there's a commentator, and I love the way he says this. He sums up this message like this. It says, all that Isaiah prophesied in Isaiah 40 through 66 is now available to you. If you choose to recognize your king, this is the beginning of the glorious end. See, John's mission was simple. It was, it was straightforward. It was powerful. His mission was to prepare the way for the king, to prepare the way of the Lord, to prepare the way for this beginning of the glorious end, as is said here. And this is why John says, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. John here is ushering in a new season. The king is here and therefore the kingdom of heaven is here. Notice the language. It's at hand. It's not that it's real close. It's not that it's right around the corner. It's not that it's near. It's here. Why? Why is it here? Because the king is here. And the mission of John was to prepare the way for Jesus. The mission of John was to prepare the way for the kingdom of heaven because the kingdom is here because the king is here. And, and this church um, was not an easy mission. Um, we, we know, I, I think we all know this, that there are many times when when. God will call us out of ourselves, out of our comfort zones. Has that ever happened to you? And put you into a place where his mission calls you to do something that is not easy, that is challenging. Um, listen, it's not to say that you're like the prophet John the Baptist, not, doing, not saying that. But you are a disciple of Jesus. And you have been given a commission by Jesus to go make disciples. You've been given this mission. And how many know that mission is not always easy? It's not always easy. Um, the mission that we are given is not always easy. But God is with us, empowering us, accomplishing his work through us, just as he does here in our text in the life of John. Um, and I want you to think about this. This really hit me this week. So, John, maybe this won't blow your mind like it does me. It, it really did me. I've been sitting with this all week. So John is given this mission to prepare the way of the Lord, to prepare the way for Jesus's first coming, to prepare the way for the first coming of the king, right? That's John's mission. 
Well, the New Testament is very clear. From the Great Commission to Acts 1, our mission is to prepare the way for the Lord, to prepare the way for Jesus's coming. Not the first, but the second coming, to prepare the way for the king, the return of the king. This is our mission to prepare the way. Our mission is John's mission. As his disciples, your mission is John's mission to prepare the way. And John's mission in this context was difficult. I read this from a commentator who says this really bluntly. He says, the condition of God's covenant people in Jesus's day was dismal. The priests were supposed to represent the people of God and they were crooks. They were the wicked men that Isaiah and Isaiah 28 Um, had prophesied about completely out of touch with God and his covenant, and they were a nation in need of repentance. So how is that for a mission field? It's fertile, but here's the thing, church, and I want you to hear this. Fertile ground, the fertile grounds of our mission field are often the most hostile. Because here they turned their backs, they had gone in the opposite direction and they had turned their back on God and turned their back on God's word and I think um, it's easy for us as Christians in America it can be tempting to equate the moral slide that we see in America um, with Israel here in this context I think that's only natural that we do that Um, and there are some similarities but I got to tell you church it doesn't even begin to do it justice what is happening in this text Because here's the thing, Israel was God's people, God's nation, given the law, they were given the prophets, they were given the king, they were, God established them, protected them, they were God's covenant people, they were meant to be the light among all the nations, they were meant to walk in favor and blessing, they were supposed to, God was supposed to be their God, and they were supposed to be his people, that's what was supposed to happen, and yet here, it's almost unthinkable, they had abandoned their God, rebelled, and they were wicked. And guess what John's mission was? To tell them that. Mm, that I mean, to prepare the way of the Lord. And that preparation came with a message. And so let's move to his mission, to prepare the way, to his message. What was John's message? Verse two, repent, for the kingdom of of heaven is at hand. His message was repent, calling them to repent. And um, the image that I get here is like God is going this way. His word is this way. And the people are just going that way. It's not even that these paths are even close and that somehow they're going to intermittent. No, You have one going one way, the other going the other way. They're not the same. They will not intersect. In other words, the people don't just need a slight nudge course correction. No, the people need a full-blown turnaround, about face, go the other direction. That's what repentance is. It's a turning. And John's message that he was to preach was to call the people to turn around. Uh, sometimes I think we can think of repentance as a just a change of mind, but all throughout Scripture, we see that repentance takes on the sense of not only changing your mind, but changing your life. 
turning around, going the other way. John here is calling them to change their life as a result of changing their thought and attitude, to come back. It's a huge calling, huge message. Repentance is not just a slight modification to your life. Just a slight little course correction. No, it's, it's, it's not just a change of mind. It's a change of life, change of action. Um, we don't just make small tweaks. We turn, turn from our own sin, turn from our own path in order to follow him. Um, I've heard this example. I think it's a good one. If you think about your, um, your navigation system in your pocket, um, whether you use Apple, whether you use Google, Waze, it, don't, it doesn't matter. Think about it for a minute. Um, let's say that you're trying to go north on 281. And somehow you turn and you are going south on 281. Okay? Your phone is going to, in its own way, yell at you. And it will say, it, it's not going to say, hey, maybe just try to go a little less south. <laughs> just, just tweak it a little bit. No, it's not going to say that. Um, it's going to say, make a U-turn. Turn around. And then if you don't listen to it, it's going to yell at you again. Turn around. It's going to keep doing it. It has crazy endurance. It's going to keep telling you to turn around. Repentance is like working with your phone's GPS. Because here's what happens. Two things. Um, first, you need to hear the message. That means acknowledging it. That means you need to first acknowledge even if you're stubborn, I am, in fact, going south. And I do, in fact, need to be going north. It's an acknowledgement, I am going the wrong way. Step number one, acknowledging I'm going the wrong way. But repentance can't end there. Because you can acknowledge your way all the way south to Mexico. Acknowledgement is not enough. You have to take step two, which is to ease off of your accelerator, exit, and do a U-turn. You have to turn around. You have to do a U-turn around. Where you're no longer going south, you're going north. Um, this is like the call that we have to repent. We first acknowledge, I'm going in the wrong direction. Then we need to turn to our, align ourselves with this and to go God's direction. That is repentance and that is John's message to the people. And uh, in the Christian walk, um, we have two words for this and they're important words. The first is confession. That is the acknowledgement part. I'm going south and I'm confessing. I thought I knew better. I'm confessing I am, in fact, going south. It is an acknowledgement and a confession of sin. Step one. The second word we have is repentance, and that's the act of actually turning around. Confess, repent. And this is why John will call them out in verses six. I mean, they're coming out to him. Verse six says they're being baptized by him in the, in the, the river Jordan, confessing their sins, acknowledging confessing, turning around. This was John's message. Repent for the kingdom of heaven is here. The king is here and you are going the wrong way. 
Stop it. Turn around. I mentioned before, but um, our mission to prepare the way is very similar to John's. As followers of Jesus, though, um, not only are we very similar in our message until the day Jesus returns, we also have a very uh, similar message to John. John is saying, listen, the king is at hand. You're going the wrong way. Confess, acknowledge your sin, turn and repent. And then look what is, is happening as John is sharing this message. Um, he's not watering it down. He's not taking the edge off. He's calling for full-blown change. And what are they doing? They're coming to him and getting baptized and confessing their sins. The crowds were coming, hearing the message, confessing they're going the wrong way and repenting and not just doing it privately. I wanna bring this out here. What was happening? They were making their repentance and confession public. They were confessing their failure to meet God's standards and they were resolving very publicly to change their ways. And it brings me to the last kind of thing that I've been really wrestling with this week. I don't think I've ever fully thought about this. Um, but the way they were doing this visibly and publicly is they were demonstrating the seriousness of their repentance through baptism. And uh, I gotta ask, what is that? Um, the reason I ask this is because we celebrate baptisms here at Stone Oak. And... Uh, I love it, like love it. What are we celebrating when we celebrate baptisms? We're celebrating, publicly celebrating what God has done in our lives. Um, it's an outward sign of an inward reality and truth. It's, it's the way that we publicly identify with Jesus and with his people, the church, because of what he has done. It's to say, through Christ, I am forgiven, saved, redeemed, transformed, made new. I am his. Like, I'm in Jesus, and I'm with them. That's what we're saying when we celebrate baptism. It's loaded with so much rich symbolism. If you think about it, you go down in the water, signifying the way Jesus went down in death in the grave. You come up out of that water. What does that signify? Jesus rising from death. Death to life, resurrection. You go down in the water, signifying the fact that the old is dead. And we're new as we come out of that water. If we go down in the water, signifying the physical death that we face. We don't stay there. We come up out of that water, signifying the future, the hope we have in Jesus that we will rise just like him. Baptism, the symbolism is so rich. It's so powerful. It's such a celebration. One of my favorite things that we get to do as a church. And so shameless plug here, by the way, if you've not been baptized or have questions about it, we would love to help you talk with you. Let me know. You can do that the old school way of just like, come talk to me. Um, but I know that sometimes that's not easy to do, we're in and out, whatever that might be. You can let us know through one of our cards, um, the green cards that should be around you somewhere. I thought I had one. Uh, you know what I'm talking about. You can um, let us know through one of those. And myself, one of our elders, we're going to reach out to you. Another way you can do it is even let us know online. You can just scan this. And, and myself or one of our elders, we're going to reach out to you because we love celebrating what Jesus has done. 
And baptism is such a beautiful, phenomenal way that we are able to do that. So don't leave here today without letting us know. We, we, we love this, but let me ask you a question. Here in our text in Matthew, as John was baptizing, what was baptism in their context? Like, have you ever thought about that? Like, what was John doing when he was baptizing people in the wilderness? This was before Jesus' work on the cross. What was baptism? It's really interesting because as I looked at this, baptism is something that had been practiced for centuries in, in the Jewish culture. Um, it's actually, if you were a Gentile and wanting to be a part of the Jewish people, um, it's part of what you had to do. So, you know, you'd have to sacrifice if you're a dude, circumcision's on the table, you know, and then um, you have to memorize portions of the law. You had all those things, but guess what? Step number four, I don't know the order, but baptism. Baptisms was, was one of the things that you would do to become a part of the people. But more than that, it wasn't just the Gentiles who were getting baptized. Baptism was also the symbol for the Jewish people of, and it was done regularly, like a washing. It's like taking a bath spiritually. And they would do this as a daily cleansing of sin. So baptism was, was something they practiced. It would have been familiar to them, but I gotta tell you, the way John's doing it is not like that. He was kind of taking something that they did, and, and this was very new. Um, I read a commentator who says it like this, and I think this is helpful. He says, John's call for a one-time only baptism for those who had been uh, born as Jews was unprecedented. And listen to this. He says, John thus insisted that one's ancestry was not adequate to ensure one's relationship with God. That is a massive, massive statement. He continues and he says, as has often been put somewhat colloquially, God has no grandchildren. Like that, we'll come back to that. Our parents' religious affiliations afford no substitute for our own personal commitment. Once people made that commitment, however, they solemnized it in baptism. There is no evidence that John permitted them to be rebaptized when they became followers of Jesus. John's baptism, therefore, it foreshadowed Christian baptism. John's baptism foreshadowed Christian baptism. That means it set the stage for what we get to do today, church. And, and that saying, I told you I'd come back to it, that is just awesome. God has no grandchildren. Only children. And baptism is an outward proclamation that through Christ, I'm a child of God. It, it, having said that, I, I, I want you to take in what John is doing in our text. This rough wilderness man prophet has this mission, this message. His, his mission is to prepare the way for Jesus, the new covenant, the Messiah, the king, to prepare the way for his coming. And his message was repent. Acknowledge, confess your sin, and turn away. Repent and step on into the water. Get baptized. Only this baptism was different. Why? Because it was done once, not every day, and because it wasn't just about being ethnically Jewish. It was done in response to the message and in response to repentance. This is very new. 
It was a way that John gave the people to make public their identity and to make their repentance public as a people. And as, as we think about this, our, how similar we are in, in our mission, how similar we are in the mission that, that John has, the mission that Jesus gave us to prepare the way. But as we close, listen, we need to understand how similar we are in our message. And both as givers and receivers. Let me start with the receiving part. Listen, I'm gonna say this again. God does not have grandchildren. And um, that means you're not saved by the faith of your parents. It also means you are not condemned for the lack of faith of your parents. We are called to respond in faith to Christ. We are called to be children of God. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, and the message for you to receive directly from John this morning is repent because the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Repent, that you would confess your sins, meaning don't try to hide them. Don't try to make light of them. Uh, Don't try to, you know, snuggle up to them and pretend it's okay. Acknowledge them. Confession is like, um, think about it like this. Confession of sin is a lot like walking into a dark room and turning on the light. The reality is that sin loves dark corners. Sin loves the darkness where it can linger, grow, and thrive, and, and sin loves that dark. Confession is like walking into that dark room and going, flick, clicking on the lights, and, and illuminating the dark. It's like dragging the sin out of that dark corner into the light and thereby weakening it. Confession is turning on the lights, calling it out, acknowledging our sin before him, not trying to hide, acknowledging it before him. We repent, we turn. But listen, we also put that sin to death. And here's what I wanna get at. It's one thing to drag out that sin from the dark corner, flip on the light, weaken it. But listen, once it's weakened by the light, don't you dare just turn around, flip back off the lights and go about your day. Don't turn the lights back off. Continue on your way. Repent and kill that sin. Drag it out, turn around. It's like your GPS. Again, don't just know you're going south and you need to turn around. Actually do the U-turn. And I wanna be very clear here um, when I say this. You are not saved by your works. You are not saved by your ability or your goodness um, or your potential you're not even saved by your ability to make a really good U-turn, okay? You're saved by the power of God through Jesus Christ, period. You are saved by the love of God that was demonstrated through Christ. You are saved by grace through faith, period. We, in fact, are about to sing one of my favorite new songs. As a church, we've been waiting for this song. You don't know this, but I've been waiting for this song. I love it. Um, And I want to read to you just the first stanza. It says it so beautifully. It says, all sufficient merit, shining like the sun, a fortune I inherit by no work I have done. My righteousness I forfeit 
at my Savior's cross, where all sufficient merit did what I could not. That'll preach. You do not do a U-turn in order to earn your salvation. You are saved by grace through faith in the all-sufficient merit of Jesus Christ. And now in that, we get the joy now, the joy and the privilege of turning and repenting. We're now given the power to turn around. We're now given the spirit and the word of God that calls us to turn around. In other words, before Christ saved you, there was no need for a U-turn. You're just on the road heading to your destination. There's no need for a U-turn before you came to Jesus. It is only through Jesus, only through his work that you have now been called into a new destination, given a new life, that now we get the joy and privilege of turning around. It is only through him that we walk this new path. And so hear the gospel of Jesus, respond in faith, believing Christ and repent. John's message is still our message to receive. One more thing with this though, is repentance is not just a one-time thing for you as a Christian. Like, all right, confess that sin, now I'm done. If you've been following Jesus for any amount of time, you know that's not the way the Christian walk works. Repentance and confession becomes this spiritual discipline for us that we practice it regularly, that we get to practice it regularly. Why? Because we continually fight to put to death the sin. We continually push forward to grow in Christ's likeness. And so church, we repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. No matter who you are, how long you've been following Jesus, I encourage you to search your heart in your life to confess your sin, knowing he is faithful and just to forgive and to cleanse. John's message is ours to receive, but church, his message, and I want you to take this, is also ours to give, ours to proclaim. Our call, I'm gonna put this on the screen, from Jesus in Matthew 28. Jesus said to them, all authority on heaven and earth has been given to me. Go therefore, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, in the name of the Son, in the name of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you to the end, always to the end of the age. This commission was not given to a group of professional pastors in the first century. Jesus was not here speaking at a pastor's conference. Jesus here was speaking this commission to his disciples and to go, calling them to make disciples, baptize them, teach them. This is your mission because This is the calling that Jesus has given you. Your message is Christ, and therefore our our message is the gospel. This is our mission. We make disciples of Jesus. We teach the things of Jesus. This is our mission. This is our message. And and like John, central to that message is repentance. Um, I want to say this before we, we pray here. Here's the truth. God is not okay with your sin. Um. He sent his son to take it, to conquer it. He bore the consequences of your sin. He paid the debt. God hates sin. So why walk in it? God hates sin. So why do you think he's okay if we just play around with it? 
Why would we think we can justify it, make it small, make it light, downplay it? The sin that Jesus died for and that our God hates. The way of Jesus, to be a disciple of Jesus, means that we fight to put to death sin in our life for the glory of God. That we would do that through confession and through repentance. This means that our message is not only to repent, but to also call to repentance. Not only to receive, but to give. We, in other words, preach grace. And I don't just mean the people up here standing behind this really heavy pulpit. I don't just mean the preachers that stand up here. We are called to preach grace. Moms, dads, preach grace. Friends, neighbors, coworkers, students, preach grace. The grace of God. But preaching grace does not mean that we preach a light on sin gospel. We preach grace and we preach repentance. In fact, I want to say this more directly. We preach grace, so we must preach repentance. Romans 2 4 says, It's your kindness, God, that leads us to repentance. Don't be afraid to proclaim this message. We share in John's mission and we share in God's message. So take courage, take wisdom. It's gonna take obedience. But you are not alone. God is with us and uses us for his glory. Just like John, we are preparing the way for the Lord. Because one day Jesus is going to return. So let me finish with John's words again. Repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand.